Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. The number of people forcibly displaced from their homes has more than doubled since 2010. According to a new Global Trends report from the UN High Commission on Refugees, by the end of 2020, 82.4 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced. The causes ranged from threats of persecution, conflict and violence, to human rights violations and events disrupting public order. And those fleeing and seeking to make a better life for themselves and their families, well, they often seek entry in developed nations. The challenge of addressing the root causes of migration is no small task. But feeling the call to help immigrants in need, well, that's another story. For nearly 50 years, sisters Joanne Persh and Pat Murphy, two aging Catholic nuns, well, they're not slowing down. And as they age, one in her 80s and the other in her 90s, they have no intention of retiring. In fact, recently, they were arrested in the United States Capitol, protesting immigration policies. Here's reporter Helen Shin with their story. Sister Joanne Persh and Sister Pat Murphy, they're part of this network of nuns across the country. And they've been working with families who've been separated at the border. And they've been doing this work for decades now. They're 85 and 90 years old. I was really hoping for the chance to meet them, to see their work in action. Uh, Then one day, Sister Joanne called to tell me this. You know, we're going to Washington to be arrested. This is how the day unfolded. She's at the Senate office building with Sister Pat Murphy, her partner in prayer and action. The old 90-year-old lady, I mean, that's my claim to fame now, because I'm old and I'm a nun. On this morning in D.C., they're singing and praying the rosary. They stand in this beautiful marble rotunda with sunlight streaming in. There are over 200 protesters, Catholics of all ages, activists and clergy from all over the world. And the sisters, they wear these cardigans and T-shirts with the logos of the nonprofits they've started, along with sensible running shoes. Each holds a photo of a child who has died in the custody of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That is ICE. And then this priest got up trying to bless those of us being arrested And then this officer blew this screeching thing out of the bullhorn. It's a peaceful protest, and it's illegal. The sisters ignore the warnings. As a Jesuit priest says a blessing, the officers handcuff the nuns, pulling their hands behind their backs not exactly the most comfortable thing. Of course, it's not meant to be comfortable. You're not supposed to be doing what we're doing. Pat asked the officers to please cuff her in the front. It hurts less and helps with her balance this way. But the officers don't listen. They take the protesters away in the paddy wagon. Once in jail, the nuns reach for the bail money they've been carrying, 
It's maybe $50 or $60. It's like lunch money in their pockets. They know the drill, because between the two of them, they've been arrested half a dozen times. The officer who hauled them away last year said, Oh no, now we need to go to confession for arresting an elderly nun. Here's Joanne. I said, no, you don't. I have the power to forgive. I'll forgive you. But he was real careful with how tight he made the cuffs. And if they put me in jail overnight, that would have been okay if I had to stay in jail for a while. I told you we'd just start a new ministry. We'd know that's where we were supposed to be right then. A few days later, I head to Chicago, where I meet the sisters for breakfast in their apartment. We're up at 5.30 in the morning, eating yogurt with flax and chia seeds. The sisters love sharing meals with others, but they hate cooking. It takes too much time, they say. Four tablespoons a day. No way, I can't do that. They've had breakfast together like this for decades now. They met as young nuns, working at an alternative school in Wisconsin. It was for kids who had dropped out of high school. Uh, Both went on to work at hospitals on the south side of Chicago. Uh, Pat then moved to Peru, where she directed a school near Cusco. After coming back to the States, she teamed up with Joanne again uh, to do their work in immigration. Now they've known each other for over 50 years. Joanne hates being late, so we rush out the door, while Pat looks for the car keys she's misplaced. And she patiently answers my questions about what it's like to be a nun. Did you wear a habit? Oh, yeah. We're old. We, we, we had habits from the time we were new. We drive long distances in their sporty sedans. Their cars are provided for them by the Sisters of Mercy, along with a stipend and a budget for their work. Do you want to sit in the front? Oh, no, no, no. You go ahead. Oh, I mean, there's a... Many of their friends, sisters well into old age, have lost their licenses and forfeited their cars. But not these two. For years, they've been visiting immigrant detention centers throughout Illinois and Wisconsin. There, they sit and pray and listen to the stories of the detainees. Officials have invited them inside during snowstorms and lockdowns, even. One of the officials says this. Would make his job easier because we would bring a peaceful presence into that agitated pod. The sisters head inside the detention center. Since I'm not allowed inside with them, I meet with a woman named Anita instead. The sisters had helped Anita when her husband was inside of a detention center like this one. Like so many others, she was so grateful she became a supporter and a friend. Anita's not her real name, by the way, but that's what she's asked us to call her, for her privacy's sake. I want to say my son was about five years old. He was in kindergarten. She's talking about the day her husband, who was undocumented, didn't come home. And um, my husband... He's from Mexico and had come to the States in the 90s as a teenager. Had been driving. I believe he was on his way to... He was heading to a job interview after dropping his son off at school when an officer stopped and detained him on the spot. It was like days before I even heard from him. Immigration authorities placed him in a detention center, a few hours' drive away. Eventually, Anita heads there with their five-year-old son. But once they get there, the front desk won't let them see him. Instead, they have to go to a room with video monitors. And this was the only way they're allowed to talk. I think it gives you like a 
a one minute notice, like a beep, that it's going to turn off. And at that point, then you leave, and and that's that's that like watching a TV. It, it it is like watching TV. Anita's five year old sat on the floor, anxious because he couldn't see his dad. He would just rip chunks and chunks of his nails off, and um, to the point that they would they would bleed. Let me share with you a quick backstory here. When the sisters first tried to get inside the detention centers about 10 years ago, the authorities wouldn't let them inside either. So they hired an attorney and proposed new legislation that would let them in. At first, they faced some opposition. And those opposing us were the Illinois Sheriff's Department and the Minutemen. So... (laughs) There we were, but it passed out of the committee unanimously. It let religious workers inside the detention centers. It changed state law. Now they visit every week with the dozens of volunteers they've recruited. And they sit and they listen for hours. And the sisters fill the commissary accounts for the detainees they've met. They give $10 to anyone whose accounts are running low. If you have $10 to spend, you can make a choice. You know, I'll make phone call. No, I think I'll buy ramen noodles. No, I really need soap. You know, that helps them keep their humanity. Each week, the sisters ask those on the inside, is there someone in your family we can call for you? Anita began to despair, wondering if her husband would ever come home again. When one day, she gets a call from a woman she's never met before. We just saw your husband, the voice says. And that's how Anita meets sisters Pat and Joanne. When Anita first crossed paths with Pat and Joanne, she had just one request. I had asked Sister Joanne once, I, I said, please, if the next time you go, if you can please give him a hug for me. I would greatly appreciate it. And I gave her a big hug and she said, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do um, because they're not allowed to touch, like even hold hands or anything like that. And at their next visit, Sister Joanne is praying with Anita's husband when for just a moment, the guard has turned away. And she was able to give him a hug for me. And um, that was the best feeling that he was able to get a hug Um And I'll never forget that, (laughs) ever. A lot of families give up. They stop visiting. But keeping connected to her husband through Pat and Joanne as her proxy, Anita says it kept her hope alive. Eventually, Sister Joanne and Pat help Anita find an immigration attorney. And with their help, her husband is released from the detention center. She remembers the day he came home and saw their son. It was his first time seeing him in almost a year. I was concerned that he had been, they had been separated for too long, that their relationship wasn't going to be the same anymore. That evening, you know, I started doing laundry in the basement, and then I heard a ruckus upstairs, and I thought, oh, thank God, they're back. But most of the other men who her husband was detained with They've never seen them again. Many didn't have access to lawyers. Anita believes that most of them were deported. The next day, Pat and Joanne take me to Sukasa. It's a monastery they've converted into a safe house in southwest Chicago. 
It's one of several homes they've built for asylum seekers. Oh, once more. Okay. And when I say built, I mean they've overseen construction projects. They fought local zoning boards, and they met with neighbors who didn't want refugees in their neighborhood. And they convinced the archdiocese to back them in all of this work. Warm light shines through the stained glass windows. It casts these beautiful patterns on the thick carpet in the hallways. Uh, there's an elevator, but Pat insists on taking the carved wooden stairs. You've got good knees still. Yeah, they're not bad. They, Pat and Joanne lived here at Tsukasa during the 1990s. They were younger then. And they provided shelter for Central Americans fleeing violence and coming to the U.S. Over the years, nearly 160 people have called Tsukasa their home. It's another reminder of how long these sisters have been doing this work. That was Annie's room, and she was a, uh, an immigrant or a refugee, uh, a survivor of torture, um, and she came from El Salvador. Often she would run screaming out of her room at night, sometimes tumbling down the stairs, Pat says. And uh, her whole arm was burned from napalm, and it was all kind of shriveled up. And she was uh, impregnated by this military. And I, I don't know if she had more than one child. And one of our... There are too many stories that are hard to hear. But Joanna and Pat managed to smile as they talk about the kids who lived here, who ran up and down the halls. So we had to celebrate every birthday and every holiday. You had to do that for the kids while the adults were bleeding inside. We continued down the hall, past a room full of warm winter coats and boots and car seats donated for residents who'd come from warmer places by foot. We come to a nearly empty wooden booth. This was a confessional. Let's see. Here we go. So, I mean, now they're using it to store the vacuum cleaners. When Pat and Joanne lived here, it was a medicine cabinet. It held the psychiatric medications for all the residents. After dinner, they'd line up like it was a dispensary. They'd escaped their traumas, but they were still learning to live with their memories. Triggers were everywhere. One young man who just went berserk whenever he heard a Christmas carol. It felt like their cars were on autopilot, Pat said, headed to the emergency room again and again in the middle of the night. The sisters have done this work with immigrants day after day for more than 50 years. Now their work is focused on visiting those inside of detention centers. They say that keeping busy like this, it's precisely what keeps them alive. It helps them press through those doubts that inevitably arise. A lot of times... You know, um, I I pray to God then and ask God, you know, where are you in this? And I, I still, I still believe that in some way some good will come out of this. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but I guess deep down, I've got to believe that.
You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back, sisters Joanne Persh and Pat Murphy open up about pain, aging, and the power of helping others. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We're taking a closer look at the activism of two Catholic nuns, Sisters Joanne Mersch and Sister Pat Murphy. Five decades of activism have taken a toll on each, but helping others, they explain, helps them cope with the struggles they encounter. Let's get back to the story. The sisters have done this work with immigrants day after day for more than 50 years. Now their work is focused on visiting those inside of detention centers. They say that keeping busy like this, it's precisely what keeps them alive. It helps them press through those doubts that inevitably arise. A lot of times, you know, um, I, I pray to God then and ask God, you know, where are you in this? And I, I still, I still believe that in some way some good will come out of this. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but I guess deep down, I've got to believe that. Pat has survived cancer and chemotherapy. Joanne manages fibromyalgia and lupus with chronic pain every day. A lifetime of work has caught up to her. I could sit home and say, oh, I have a lot of pain. Or I could work with my pain, make it my friend, and work together and just 
do it. Sometimes it's unbearable, even on her way to work. But once she's at the detention center giving someone a hug, she forgets. And then we go upstairs and I hear those stories. And by the time I was driving home, my pain was nothing. So, no, it doesn't stop me. This is why they drive, sometimes for hours, through blustery Chicago winters to visit emergency rooms and detention centers. They call politicians and speak at rallies and candidate forums. They have this uncanny way of getting people on board with them. Joanne carries a cell phone. It's this flip phone with hundreds of contacts. Pat prefers a paper address book. It's a few inches thick, and it's always in her purse, filled with the names of friends. We need each other, and we can, when we're down or low, we can draw the God out of the other people who surround us. I've had to leave that, live that all my life, to draw the God, the God and God's help out of each person, each bite of food, um, each cup of tea. Uh, the person we meet on the street because we're meeting God in those times. And they lift our spirits. They can make us laugh. As Joanne scrolls to the contacts on her phone, she also finds the head of Midwestern Ice and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, who's more than just their senator. He's the ranking member of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Immigration Subcommittee. The sisters routinely pray for both men. Durbin, a lifelong Catholic, says he appreciates that. As far as I'm concerned, they they really embody uh, the values that those of us who call ourselves Christians believe in, and so many other religions, too. Uh, and they've proven it with every day of their lives. I've also heard that Sister and Joanne and Pat are very convincing. Would you agree, and have they ever convinced you to do something? Well, I can tell you, I, I grew up going to Catholic schools, and nuns were always very convincing, every one of them, uh, along the way. Uh, but when it comes to legislation, we usually see eye to eye. If there's ever any difference, they always win the argument. And here's their secret when working with anyone, even when they disagree. To look at the ICE officer and the correctional officers, and remember, they are children of God, and they also deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And if we do that, then we can expect that back from them. The officers like Sister Pat and Joanne so much, they've invited the two to ICE staff parties. In one recent Christmas... The officers even asked the nuns to bake cookies for the detainees. A major moment in jail history, and it may never happen again, but they were thrilled. They don't ever get anything like home-baked cookies or candy. They both like sweets, especially bun cakes. They prefer chocolate, but won't tell me this straight up. Because despite all they do, they don't like to talk about themselves. On Fridays, Pat and Joanne drive to the Broadview Processing Center for their weekly prayer vigil. A few dozen others join them. They gather under this dark fence with barbed wire coils and a flapping American flag. This was where you'd come to board the white vans that would take you to the airport for your deportation flight. That is, when ISIS determined that you aren't allowed to stay. Many are returning to places where there's violence or war, 
and leaving family in America. For all undocumented people who experience fear and live in a state of uncertainty. Each week, Joanne and Pat and other volunteers would board the buses just before they would leave. Craig Musin, a friend of the sisters and a clergy volunteer, describes it this way. And then every seat in the bus has two men on each seat, and everyone's jackaled to hands, waist, and, and they're looking at you. From the front seat, the sisters and the other volunteers, they turn around and they look each person in the eye and offer a prayer. You let God give you the words, and, and then you go into the Lord's Prayer, and they join you. And then um, you start crying. <laughs> and then the bus takes off. Each week they huddle outside, no matter how cold of a Chicago winter morning. There are days that it feels too early, too cold, and too dark to come out to pray. Sister Twin and Pat are the ones who convince the others to show up on days like this. They pray. Sometimes it's the rosary, sometimes it's a Muslim prayer or a Jewish blessing. And they always end with the same old protest song, We Shall Overcome. Instead of ending with the refrain we all know, We Shall Overcome Someday, they sing a different refrain with dogged determination. We shall overcome this year. Thank you all very much. I asked Pat and Joanne if they have any plans to retire. Well, we don't know what that means. If someone says, when are you going to retire? I want to know what do they want me to do. My cousins who can move to Florida. You could sit home and eat bonbons. (laughs) And gain weight. And gain weight, yeah. (laughs) But... I will know when God is telling me, you've done what I asked you to do. And right now, I don't hear that voice. I have strength. My mind is okay. I still feel called. When I know it's time to retire, whatever that means, I'll know it and I'll do it. But it's not yet. It might be tomorrow, but it's not today. That was Sister Joanne Mersch and Sister Pat Murphy. This story was reported and produced by Heidi Shin. It's part of a series called Sacred Steps, produced by KALW's The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with the University of Southern California's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. To hear more stories like this, check out the new Spiritual Edge podcast. Just visit thespiritualedge.org to learn more. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.
like the Quaker mission of believing in the divine light of each person and nobody is beyond redemption. And just from that Quaker faith and love and action and, you know, working with groups and people who believe that, um, who are working for a better future. Sometimes no matter how pie in the sky that dream feels, the fact that people are not giving up and there's still consistency in that advocacy and in dreaming for where we are all living a life in a sustainable earth. That was Penella Bay. She's a policy engagement coordinator at the American Friends Service Committee's Office of Public Policy and Advocacy. She works in Washington, D.C., coordinating with grassroots activists around the country. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. And this week, if you're just joining, we're taking a closer look at people of faith and goodwill seeking to push policy and elected leaders, including President Biden, to take action to adopt policies that would offer undocumented residents of the United States a pathway to citizenship. That is a priority for the Interfaith Immigration Coalition. It's a nonpartisan network of over 50 national faith-based organizations working to, in their words, enact fair and humane immigration reform. Penella Bay serves as the chair, and she comes to the work inspired by her faith and her experience as an immigrant. Born and raised in Nigeria, Ibe arrived in the United States as an international student. But then, three years later, something happened that gave her a path to becoming a citizen. Due to some stroke of events, my mom was able to apply for permanent residency. And because I was below 21, as is the law, I was able to get a permanent resident status through that as well. I'm fortunate that my status um, has been, quote unquote, documented at all stages and not as precarious as other people's have been. It's that awareness of the privilege of being documented that motivates Ibe's advocacy. It's also what drew her to the American Friends Service Committee, or AFSC. It's a Quaker organization that runs programs around the world. From direct service to policy advocacy on a host of issues, including immigration. And it was that history that attracted Penel Ibe. I was really encouraged by by the history. AFSC is almost 107 years. And as I was going through the history, um, there was oftentimes, you know, reading and finding that AFSC was in, in many cases, right, was on the right side of history or took on challenges that no one else would or, you know, stood by communities that no one else would. We're thinking about, you know, when Japanese um, nationals were in internment camps. I've had people email me and say, you know, my father or someone was actually born into a blanket that AFSC provided. I'm curious um, because you're working on immigrant advocacy rights and yeah. and you're not a citizen. How did you feel during the Trump administration? How do you feel now? You know, I not directly vulnerable, but the reality is that a green card is is not permanent in in the sense that I always joke around that the ink is never fully dry. A minor infraction of a misdemeanor or something, you know, and as a black person, knowing that these systems are set up um, to disenfranchise you in many ways, you're always very vulnerable.
in the Trump administration, they had a denaturalization task force that went after people and took back their citizens. So even as citizens, it's you're never truly protected, right? If the law can find one reason why um, and says that you're not worthy of the status that you were given. And so I, I was always aware of that if I was at a rally or at a protest or something, you know, reminding myself that these are my limitations and I would try and memorize all the like lawyers numbers um, and my rights so that I was always prepared. But it also made me even more aware of what it was like for someone who's undocumented to move around in the United States. Um, so in those moments, I felt the vulnerability that I could possibly be in, but was even more aware of the privilege that I operated in in that vulnerability. Mm. I'm always intrigued and curious how we navigate those and find ways to express our beliefs, use our voice, while also mindful of the power that we have and the power we don't have if something happens. How do you see this holiday, July 4th, as it relates to the work that you do? It's, I think it's interesting coming that July 4th is so close to Juneteenth um, and the talk of independence. Um, and so just reflecting on that as someone who's not American and seeing what independence means to the different communities here, um, what it means to immigrants as well. For some, it's a celebration of the rights that they, you know, no matter how little that they didn't have back home, which is why they left. And for some, they're reminded of what they do not have access to and what rights are often used against them. And yeah, it's just, it's, I still look at it and I'm like, a lot of people are not independent in a lot of systems in the U.S. as, as I learn and as I listen to stories um, in communities. And so July 4th has mixed feelings um, and just the history, right, of the country in general. Um, to some, this is a celebration. To many, it isn't. Um, and I think the, the, the beauty of America is that those two things exist um, and they should be allowed to exist that if one does not feel free, if one does not feel the need to celebrate this because it really hasn't meant the same for them as others, they should be allowed to express that because that is what a democracy is. Um, so just reflecting on that and seeing how different people engage with it um, is really interesting Um because I'm coming from a country where it sort of means the same as well, you know, posted uh, uh, an independence for Nigeria. I'm from the Igbo tribe and we experienced a genocide by, by um, the northern tribe in Nigeria. Um, and so we all have to stand under the same flag, but doesn't mean the same for everyone in Nigeria anymore because under that flag, people were killed. Right. Um, so like independence and sort of these dates um, really are just very interesting social constructs that that bring up imp very important conversations that should not be hidden um, and should be had and should be addressed. So that's how I, I reflect on this. So it's more than a holiday, which sometimes, you know, you just need a holiday. But with this work, you, you need to look you need to read in between the lines. What is the Citizenship for All campaign that you're working on right now? So Citizenship for All um, really is just um, a demand that we've put forward to Congress to say, create a pathway to citizenship for the almost, if not more than 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. And 11 million undocumented immigrants, um, they range in, quote unquote, the status that they have 
under like USCIS, which is like the immigration services space. So we've seen multiple immigration policies within the United States that prioritizes detention and deportation and separating families and tearing apart communities um, is prevalent. And we continue to see those systems um, sort of being ballooned. Their budgets are increasing. Their scope is increasing. And what we know is that the only way individuals can really be protected from those systems at the moment is getting permanent status, permanent protection, which is um you know, legal permanent residency or a green card, like some folks will call it, which then puts individuals on a pathway to citizenship. So when we say citizenship for all, we're asking for permanent protections for everyone who needs it so that they're not subjected to systems of detention and deportation. And this campaign is not, it's not today. It's been decades long of advocacy that people have been working on. Um, And what we found is that every year or every Congress, when we hear immigration reform of some sort, what we see is an increase in funding for detention and deportation and, you know, creation of policies that expand detention and deportation of immigrants. But we never see protections, permanent protections. Um, And so that is really what we're asking for. Like, we do not want protections at the expense of other community members being subjected to inhumane systems. When we see conversations around immigration, the narrative is really to detain people. So to put people in carceral facilities, if they're asylum seekers, if they're individuals that have been here, um, you know, doesn't matter how long, um, without sort of a status or documentation, as you would say, we've seen that that is where policy narrative has been shifting towards. And we want to push it back to say, instead of enforcement um, in the form of detaining people, mass detention, and then having people sort of be in detention centers and then seek out an immigration pathway, that we should create a pathway to citizenship that is clearer, that is more accessible to all these individuals, um, that is timely. And so that people who've lived here for decades, for some and others who are seeking an avenue to regularize their status, have that access. And we haven't had any policy like that in decades, right? Policies that put people on a pathway to citizenship at a mass level, as a mass scale. We haven't had that, but we have had policies that have created an over-reliance on, on using detention and deportation as a way to regulate immigration. How is the Interfaith Immigration Coalition responding to the posture and the approach that the Biden-Harris administration is taking? We are encouraging the Biden administration to welcome with dignity. That is um, that is a campaign, in fact, that does exist. And the AFSC is part of and members in the ISC contribute to that effort as well. Um, we know why people migrate. Right. We know, um, first of all, that migration is a human right. Seeking asylum is a human right. And we want the United States to recognize that. And so to treat individuals who are coming to the U.S. in that form as people who are exercising their human rights and welcome them with dignity and not with systems that criminalize them, that incarcerate them, systems that already compound the the trauma that they have already experienced fleeing whatever they fled um, and making the journey up to the United States, right? And so we're saying welcome with dignity, provide resources so that individuals who need access to legal services um, to state a claim for asylum or whatever else it may be, have that avenue to them. Like I said, people will migrate um, and it's only going to get worse. Um, we hear it this past week in the U.S. We saw terrible numbers um, in, in the heat, right, that was around. And this is happening around the world and people cannot survive in those conditions. There is long term effect from that. And so messaging that we hear from any administration saying people should not come 
um, like I said, um, does not deter someone from fleeing what they can no longer exist within. So we're saying welcome with dignity. We're saying that um, faith-based groups like AFSC and other partners are ready and willing and able to work to make sure that we do, we process people in a humane way. We center their dignity. We understand that they are seeking a better path. We understand that they're exercising their human rights. Um, and that we should approach them with that kind of a welcome, a humane welcome. We've, you know, we've talked about this for decades now. It doesn't matter the administration. Our messaging remains the same. And we bring this message forward because we know we're not just in the U.S., but we're in the region as well, in Mexico, in Guatemala. And we see what people are fleeing. And so we know why we need to welcome with dignity and with humane policies. What has been the reaction to the Citizenship for All campaign that is underway right now? What's been the reaction by lawmakers and policymakers in the Biden-Harris administration as well as in the the congressional offices? It has been promising, I I would say. Um, I think post the Trump administration and when we saw how a lot of communities became more vulnerable and um, we saw like the fact that with each administration, um, a lot of community members are vulnerable to their whims and their and their their values. And so, if they value immigration versus if they don't value immigration, and we also saw that that kind of limbo is not a way for people to live, right? And then we saw the pandemic. We saw the fact that a lot of essential workers during the pandemic um, were immigrants who were in the farms, who were in the grocery stores, who were cleaning offices, who were nurses, who were doctors, you know, essentially providing for the communities, their communities during the pandemic. And so with that kind of with that kind of realization and just endless consistent advocacy from individuals who are directly impacted and allies like ourselves, We've seen a shift in in some sense um, in Congress uh, towards uh, our demands for a pathway to citizenship. In fact, from the Biden administration, I think we saw a signal of of support and willingness to engage when the Biden administration um, introduced legislation through through Congress, the U.S. Citizenship Act, sort of put in for the first time a really comprehensive um, bill that address the fact that we have not given people an opportunity to to seek a pathway to to permanent residency and then citizenship. And so we see a lot of messages from Congress. We have a lot of champions and allies who are in support. Um, Bills like the Dream and Promise Act in the Congress that um, puts dreamers, as they're colloquially called, or DACA recipients on a pathway to citizenship alongside TPS holders people who have temporary protected status and, you know, have to be in the United States because they cannot return to their country or where they initially called home, Um, putting them on a pathway to citizenship because many of them have been here decades, have U.S. citizenship children, have lived lives here, have contributed to communities here. We saw legislation putting them on a pathway to citizenship pass the House. You bring up separation from loved ones and specifically the family separation policies and the consequences of detention. It's something that has actually animated a lot of conversation in faith communities, not necessarily the policies, but the the impact, the direct human impact on families, on children and the trauma. And that's actually inspired a lot of activism from folks that were not active before on this issue. And I'm I'm thinking specifically about the family separation policy for unaccompanied children who were put into detention centers and for children who arrived with, you know, adults and who were separated. It actually mobilized 
a lot of unusual suspects, meaning people who were not Mm -hmm. advocating on immigration. Do you continue to see those voices staying engaged in this call for policy change now that there is a new administration? As an organizer, are you seeing a drop off or has that energy sustained? I think it's two pieces. Um, The energy has been sustained by individuals who were engaged. Um, The reality is that the family separation policy has been addressed, kind of, and continues to be addressed by the Biden administration. And so for that particular advocacy, it's not as needed. um, While it's still needed to accountability and to make sure like everything is, you know, like there is um, sort of healing and there's processes for people to reunite. We're seeing family separation in other ways. And People who are engaging are engaging. I think we also need to acknowledge the fact that we, we're in a pandemic. And so people engaged as they could, but there was limited engagement just because of capacity, availability, um, and just mental capacity. Honestly, everybody was burnt out um, and just stressed with so much else that was going on. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that there are lots of different initiatives, lots of different campaigns underway. And detention is one that definitely mobilizes people. Can you describe a little bit of what you've seen happen and the campaign that is behind some of those efforts, specifically in New Jersey? Sure. Um, so in New Jersey, um, at least AFSC's program has been providing legal representation to immigrant detainees since the Elizabeth Detention Center reopened in 1997. The reality is that while detention happens at the state level, there's a lot of of investment and over-reliance in detention at the federal level that causes these systems to continue. Um, For example, in the early 20, like 2010 thereabout, there was a campaign that we led um, to end the detention quotas because Congress was funding and had a detention quota. That is what ICE, um, the Immigration Customs and Enforcement, the number of people they had to detain on an average daily basis. And so that essentially encouraged ICE to keep their detention numbers at that level. We see um, the funding, right? You know, when they put funding forward, they put in funding forward for ICE to detain. I think in the, in the Trump administration, it was up to 50,000 people a day. Um, and so we, we keep seeing that like sort of encouragement for ICE to detain people. But then we know what detention centers look like um, because every day um, we're getting phone calls from people in detention centers about the conditions there. Um, and they're abysmal. And so particularly um, 2020 happens, COVID-19, and we know how unsafe casserole facilities are just generally, um, but how it was more of a hotbed for COVID-19. And so you know, alongside other activists, we had to find ways to release people from those from the detention centers. So in New Jersey, for example, AFSC filed a lawsuit against the Elizabeth Detention Center calling for the immediate release of all detained individuals due to the facility's lack of unsanitary and insufficient conditions during the pandemic. And we won releases of a lot of people. But we had to move further because the pandemic, you know, essentially is, quote unquote, over um, in terms of the there's vaccinations out there now. And so that could be a reason why they do not release people. We've been working on introducing bills, for example, that will ban any new immigration detention centers in the state, as well as prohibit the renewal or extension of existing ICE detention contracts. Um, and so that was a bill that actually passed both the New Jersey House, so the state House and the state Senate, and is on its way to the governor's desk. What is your response to those who say by passing citizenship for all, we will not discourage but encourage more migration to the United States? 
My response to that is that the policies that we have in place now that are quote unquote, and most administrations will use deterrents, do not stop migration. People migrate because of multiple root causes and push factors that are independent of the immigration policies here in the United States. Um, people are fleeing, you know, very terrible regimes. People are fleeing harm in their countries. People are fleeing terrible economic spaces. Um, climate change is happening as well. And so people will migrate. Um, and even during the Trump administration, right, when immigration policies was not the most favorable, people were still migrating because it was less about where they were going and more about what they were fleeing. And so a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people who call America home and who have lived here, it is not a, how would I put it? It's independent of that in some ways, because people will still migrate if the conditions where they are are no longer conducive for their existence in that space. Now, you've been at the American Friends Service Committee for four years now, and you mentioned earlier burnout among activists. Is that something that you're concerned with for yourself? In social justice work and in NGO work, that is, you know, there's high burnout levels, there's lack of resource in a lot of times because of the issues people focus on. I have colleagues who've been in this work for 20 years. I have colleagues who've retired twice and still somehow find their way back in just because there's so much work that needs to be done and they feel comfortable doing that work through this organization. And so I'm inspired by my colleagues, right? I'm inspired by the Black immigrant leaders who, when I came into this work, really helped me understand what it meant to advocate for Black immigrants as a Black immigrant myself. Um, and my faith as well. I'm a person of faith and it's, it's, it's a blessing to be able to, to use my faith values um, to push for social justice. One of my favorite Bible verses talks about, you know, letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I think for me, this is the good work that I want. Anella Bay is the Policy Engagement Coordinator at the American Friends Service Committee's Office of Public Policy and Advocacy in Washington, D.C. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion or want to take another listen, head over to interfaithradio.org where you can stream or download this episode in its entirety. And while you are there, you can subscribe to the newsletter and search the archives. If you want to listen on the go, you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks this week to the KALW Spiritual Edge team for the special Nuns and Ice, which includes executive producer Judy Silber, producer Helen Shin, and sound engineer Tarek Foda. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. A shout out to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music, and the Blue Dot Sessions for additional sound. And to all of our generous supporters who make this show possible. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. I'll see you next week. <laughs>